A guy tells a story about his church renting a theater to watch the Passion of the Christ on its opening weekend. He says, Afterwards, we, we gathered for dinner, discussion, and prayer. They returned, and then he returned home in an expectant, somber mood as he deeply reflected upon the sacrifice of Christ. He said when he had opened his mail that night, uh, the first letter was from a local church. This church was inviting them, inviting him uh, to visit their quote-unquote special community. They listed the ways that they were unique. Here's how they're unique. We have no religious dogma. We encourage the freedom of individual thought and belief. We have a humanist view of life. Our faith is based on celebrating the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Our services are warm and accessible. The service typically includes a mix of readings, music, moments of meditation or contemplation, and a sermon. Our children's religious education program teach our kids to be accepting of differing beliefs and the importance of each person seeking his or her own truth. They study the world's major religions and they draw from those core values of each of those faith traditions. So if you're looking for a congregation that cherishes freedom of belief and opinion with a warm sense of community and fellowship, please, we encourage you visit us. He said, I had just watched the horrific suffering of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross. And I heard him say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Hours later, I opened up an invitation to visit a church where truth didn't matter. Folks, that church is evangelizing. That is what churches, evangelical churches, are up against. They are evangelizing a truth that truth does not matter. The contrast between what this man just saw And what he heard Jesus say in this invitation couldn't be more overwhelming. It is a contrast of life and death. If you and I have seen anything as we go through the Gospel of John, it's that truth matters. And one of those truths is the truths that we are going to talk about today A truth that John has proclaimed, a truth that Jesus Christ has proclaimed, it is the truth that Jesus, the man born of a virgin who walked this earth, who suffered, died, and was buried and rose again on the third day, is none other than God Almighty in the flesh. And that is a truth that we cannot compromise on. Folks, if Jesus... Christ 
is not God, then you and I have placed our lives in the hands of a mere mortal. You might as well all go home right now. It means absolutely nothing if Jesus isn't God. Our faith is an empty faith, and our faith cannot save us if Jesus is not God. If Jesus is God, it reveals to us his love for mankind despite our rebellion against him. It gives us a hope. A hope that God has not abandoned us to our own devices and our ultimate demise. As we opened up this series in John, uh, we talked about uh, the purpose and the mission statement, John 20. 31, but these things are written that you may believe, that you may know that Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing, by trusting in him, by placing your faith in him, you will have eternal life. These two names, Jesus the Messiah and Jesus the Son of God, are in this section that we see here. We're in the, we're in the center of the book. And these two names, the first part, Jesus the Messiah, the second part, as I've broken down this sermon, uh, Jesus the Son of God, are interconnected and point to one reality. It is the reality of the deity of Jesus Christ. And it is the belief in this deity, it is this truth that Jesus and John and every good evangelical church wants you to grab a hold of and understand who he is, and why we can trust him. See, two proofs that we're going to look at today. Two proofs of Jesus' deity. The first proof is seen in his power. Verses 22 through 30, John chapter 10. At the time the feast, the dedication, took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them, I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. A few things I want to see here as we get started. I want us to see here as we get started. So John sets the stage. It is during the Feast of Dedication, which is the Feast of Hanukkah. Uh, so we know that there is a lot of people that are milling about. Uh, so John sets the stage and he wants us to see something. That the proclamation and the truth that Jesus is going to share with us is a public truth. This is a truth that we are to share with the world. 
This is a public proclamation. It is during the Feast of Dedication or, or Hanukkah. And I think that mentioning this feast, and Jesus, of course, as he continues to always embody these feasts, the Feast of Hanukkah is celebrated when the Maccabees revolted against the Greeks. And they did so despite what the consequences were. So I think we can, we can look at that and we can see that Jesus is, is embodying that feast and he is being faithful to God despite the consequences. Jesus knows what these guys want to do to him. And Jesus makes this proclamation, declares this truth, and he does so publicly. I want you to look at the word plainly. So they, they kind of gather around him, and I think when he says Jesus is, is walking in the portico of Solomon, he's not just kind of like strolling around, you know, and just admiring the temple scenery. Why is he, why is he walking in this area, is he wants people to come up and talk to him. He, he kind of instigates this interaction publicly between the Jews and everyone else who is watching him. And the portico of Solomon is also pretty interesting because John's readers are going to key in on that place. Because remember, John is writing this after the fact, after the early church is already established. And the portico of Solomon is where the early church started to gather. And they gathered publicly. As a matter of fact, portico of Solomon is where Peter gives his second sermon. And in his second sermon, guess what he says? Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the servant of the Lord who suffered and died for you. Therefore, you need to repent. Guess what the result was? Peter's put in jail. Do we see the connection? The early church literally follows in the footsteps of Jesus. They proclaim this truth publicly, and they do so no matter what the consequences are. Because this is the core of our belief. The deity of Jesus Christ. He does this in... It's kind, of like, it's kind of like remembering like the Gettysburg Address, right? We, we hear the Gettysburg Address. Uh, we know the place where it, it was given, but it's also the content and the example and the truth, the truth that we believe and the truth that we are to follow. And the early church did so. Jesus is cornered. They're kind of swarming around him, and it's interesting to see how Jesus handles this attack. Uh, so this big mob kind of comes around him, and they're saying to him, tell us, tell us plainly, the, the suspense is killing us. Just let us know, are you or are you not the Messiah? And the word for plainly is interesting because it means outspokenly, it means boldly, it means openly, and it means publicly. What a great illustration for the church. The truths that Jesus says, the truths that are recorded in Scripture, are the truths that you and I are to do what? Proclaim from the porch. Proclaim from the rooftop. Be outspoken about them. Be bold about them. Say them publicly. Jesus wants people to hear it, 
because Jesus wants people to believe it. The only way people are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ is if we tell them who he is and what he's done for them. It's public. And it's actually at this point that kind of is the beginning of the end of Jesus' public ministry. Many of the discussions that follow after this are going to be private discussions with his disciples. And it is this core truth, uh, the truth that is listed in in the end of the chapter, that is kind of expanded here. I think they're going to regret that they asked Jesus to tell them plainly, because just like any any good preacher, Jesus is going to give them much, much more than they asked for. He tells them, I don't think they like what he told them. But we got to understand why Jesus hasn't come out publicly except with the woman at the well, that he is the Messiah. Why, why did he kind of, so he, he says, I told you, and he, he's told them in, in subtle ways, and he also, which he's going to revisit after this, points to his works. And he's basically saying, you guys aren't really paying attention. If you're paying attention to my works, then you're going you're gonna to know who I am. But he hasn't come out, and he hasn't said so publicly, because they misunderstood what the Messiah was all about. They wanted a political Messiah. They wanted someone who was going to overthrow the Roman government and set up this earthly kingdom. Folks, many, many, many people are not going to believe in Jesus Christ because they don't, he doesn't fit their agenda. Jesus was a means to an end to them. They didn't care less about him. They just wanted this earthly kingdom established. They wanted to be out of the Roman rule, and they wanted to set up God's kingdom on earth. Now, Jesus is eventually going to do that, but first, he's going to set it up in the hearts and minds of people. But we don't, need to, we don't really need to talk a lot about uh, grabbing a political Messiah because we would never be guilty of such a thing, would we? Oh, no. No. No, we wouldn't, we wouldn't use Jesus to support our political party. And we wouldn't say that Jesus is just in favor of one political party and then use Jesus as a means to an end to set up an earthly kingdom. I don't even know why I'm talking about it because we just would, not, would never do such a thing, would we? Isn't that sometimes what we do? Grab a hold of him? Mold him? Make him like us? the poster man for our earthly kingdoms? It's not why Jesus came. He's not on this side or that side. He's on his own side. There's a test Sky Jatheny talks about in his book, With God Daily. Begins with a series of questions about what students think that Jesus is like. Is he moody? Does he get nervous? Is he the life of a party or is he an introvert? 24 questions then followed by a second set which, with slightly altered language in which the students answer questions about their own personalities. Guess what? Yep, line right up. <laughs> Everything that they are, Jesus is. And he says, though we think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is the case. 
we try to make Jesus like ourselves. And he quotes Voltaire, if God has made us in his image, you and I have returned him the favor. Own expectations, own personality traits, what do we make? We make Jesus an idol, and when he doesn't meet those expectations, when he doesn't fulfill our earthly desires, we say, all right, I'm done with you. They did the same thing. Jesus tells them the truth, and they don't want to hear that truth. They did not think that the Messiah would suffer and die. They didn't think they needed to be saved from their sin. He's basically saying to them, what else do you want me to do? It's never enough. It's never enough for them because they want a Messiah according to their own image. And the key here is he says, you do not believe. You don't believe because I'm not who you wanted me to be. They wanted a Savior that fixes the here and now and gives them what they want. And I tell you what, that's a lot of reasons why people reject them today. And we are not to promote a Savior that does that. The church needs to promote this Savior, God incarnate, who came to suffer and die for his sheep. We cannot pursue a political Messiah. So he speaks to them, but then he gives kind of what the essence of faith is in him, what it means uh, to, to follow him, to believe in him. And we see what his power is in relationship to his deity. So uh, the first aspect here is we, we talk a lot about belief. Um, and we have to see here, and he talks about his sheep. How are, how are his sheep characterized? What are they characterized by? They are characterized by hearing his voice, hearing what he is saying, his truth of who he is, and then doing what? Saying, oh, that's great. Oh, good job. Okay. Yeah. No, they're characterized by hearing and following. Faith is a lifelong pursuit of Jesus Christ. It is obedience to him. It is following the shepherd through all the wandering hills and through all the different troubles and through the ravines and over the creeks until we end up home. It's obedience. It's not some sort of intellectual assent to who he is. It is giving our lives into his hands. That's what it means to be a Christian. Receiving the truth of his identity, receiving what he has done for us on the cross, repenting of our sins, and following him. This is exactly what Jesus says. They know my voice, they hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and he gives them eternal life. It's a gift. Nobody in this world can give eternal life except for God. The creator of life is the one who gives life, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. It is a free gift, and it is a gift 
because he was a suffering Messiah. Because he laid down his life, he can give those who receive him eternal life. We talk a lot about eternal life in this, in this book, and I think we can become accustomed to the word, kind of, kind of forgetting what it means. I just want you to, to hear this. You and I, apart from Jesus Christ, are dead. Your souls are dead. They are not alive. What Jesus is saying is that true life, true spiritual life, and true life here and now cannot be had apart from me. You can search for life in this world. You can search for life in in other people. You can search for life in hobbies, in your job, or whatever it may be, in your desires, in your lusts, in your sins. And you're only going to come up empty. There is only one person that can offer you true life, and his name is Jesus Christ, and that's because he's God. That's it. That is the truth that you and I are to proclaim to this world. That is the truth you and I need to remember. As our lives here and now, what, what, what is happening in our world? Our lives are falling apart. Do you think he's trying to get our attention? To remember what it's all about. This is what it's all about. It's about him. This life is going to end. The life that he gives you will never end. And only he has the power to give it, and you will not perish. Things are perishing around us all the time, aren't they? You buy something new, it doesn't remain new. Our bodies are perishing. This is the promise. Only Jesus Christ can do that. True life cannot be experienced apart from Jesus Christ and in a relationship with him. That's what this is. It's not coming to church, not signing off on the bottom line of a membership contract. It's not saying your prayers and reading your Bible. It is seeing Jesus Christ as the only answer to your salvation that apart from him, we will suffer for all eternity. The power of true life lies in his hands And so does the security to protect that life. It's official. The coconut crab has the strongest grip. I know these things are freaky, aren't they? I think I showed a picture of the coconut crab before as they travel across. Yes, huge, huge crab. Strongest grip of any animal. Researchers from the Okinawa Chirishima Foundation in Japan 
found that the coconut crab's pinching power corresponds with its size, and the force was absolutely tremendous. Scientists collected 29 coconut crabs and had them clamp down on a bite force measuring device. Uh, the largest crab in the bunch weighed 4.67 pounds and squeezed with the force of 1,765 newtons. So what is that? I know, I'm like, what's a newton? I have no idea. So comparison would be a 143-pound human, that's almost like my size, 150, uh, with its proportional strength of the coconut crab, would, could grip something with the force of six tons. Can you imagine me shaking hands after church? Six tons? You'd all go out of here with some crushed bones. They're native to the islands in the Pacific and Indian Oceans and use their, their claws to gain a dietary advantage. Go figure. They can crack open coconuts, hence their nickname, uh, as well as other crabs and a, a wide variety of food. So even one of the researchers, marine biologist Shin Ichiro Oka, was pinched on his palm two times. While the crab didn't break any bones, his hand was essentially paralyzed until the animal released him. He said while it was only a few minutes, it felt like an eternal hell. It's a pretty strong grip, isn't it? Guess what? It's not the strongest. The one who created that crab has the strongest grip. And it's not a, a grip of eternal pain. It's a grip of eternal comfort. It's a grip of eternal love, of safety and security. It's not a grip of eternal hell. It's a grip of eternal life. Once you place your lives in the hands of Jesus Christ, he's never going to let you go. Because his grip is God's grip. And they both have a hold of you. No matter what is happening in this world around you, no matter what is coming at you, no matter what just left you, it doesn't matter. Because he has you in the palm of his hands and he is guiding you through this world and he will see you safely home. And while you're in his hands, nobody's taking you out and he's not letting anything happen to your soul. For all eternity, he's got you. He's got you. That's his promise. That's his power. And that's the power that you and I are protected with no matter what happens. You're in his hands. Because he and the Father are one.
Someone sent me a song last week, and actually goes, it went with last week, definitely goes with this week, and it's called No Matter What. Here's part of the chorus. I don't know what you've been taught. I don't know what you've been told. All I know is my God will never let go of you, no. I don't know what you've seen, don't know what you've been through. All I know is my God will never let go of you. He'll never let go of you. He has an eternal grip. It's a powerful grip. It's the grip of God. And the hands that grip you, the hands that hold on to you, they have scars, nail-pierced hands. And you can look at those as you're held in those hands and remember that it had nothing to do with what you did, but everything to do with what he did. And be reminded constantly of his love for you as you see those marks. The second proof of his deity is his works. Verses 31 through 39. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If you called them gods to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? You're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. So, these guys have some huge issues. <laughs> they said, tell us plainly. He tells them plainly, and they want to kill him. So, just let's back up to the beginning part, right? Folks, some people actually just want to trap you. They want to have you say something publicly or have you say something, you know, whatever it is you believe, so that they can justify their attack afterwards. And, and, and it's happening all, all the time now, right? We see Christians being put on the spot all the time, and some are standing firm, but others are folding like paper dolls. When asked about the truth, Jesus doesn't back down here. He knows what they're trying to do. He tells them boldly. He tells them plainly, just like they asked, and then they want to kill him. So I guess the first, you know, and, and we see, this is, this, is, this is the reaction. This is the reaction of when people hear truth that does not meet their own criteria. 
Just kill him. I don't like what you just said. I don't believe what you just said. Now, Jesus does an interesting thing here. And I, I want to key in on this word good. He, he kind of offers a logical process for them. So, so first off, he, he handles this really well. He doesn't back down uh, from what he said. He just kind of getting them. Oh, sorry, I had to put Yoda up there for once. He just wants them to calm down. He's like, whoa, slow, slow down, guys. And he does something really, I think, neat. And he just says to them, for what good work are you stoning me for? Which is real important because Jesus has said works before in this section. And, but he, here he says good work, which he's trying to get them to see something. Look, it doesn't make sense. Why are you mad at me when what I am doing is beneficial to others? Why are you upset with me just because I said this one thing and but what I'm doing is good. And I think we, we want to pull that out a little bit and just say, folks, we, we need to proclaim the truth absolutely, firmly, with, but with grace and love. We need to proclaim the truth. But our truth needs to be accompanied by good works. You, you need both, right? Because hopefully when we're attacked, we can say, well, don't you see what we're doing here? I mean, this is good stuff. How is this bad? How is my faith bad? If this is my, the truth that we're proclaiming, that Jesus is God, Jesus came to save humanity, and it's shown by us reaching out to those who are helpless, by, by reaching out to the outcast, by loving people, by doing good deeds, why are you upset with that? I kind of used this argument before when I was talking to someone and they brought up the Crusades. And I hate when people bring up the Crusades because that's not, they use that argument all the time. They're like, what about the Crusades? And I say, look, if here's here's one of the, the tenets of our religion, of this faith, is to love your enemies. That's a real good thing. Tell me another religion that's going, that's proclaiming that. If, th- if this is the truth, right, then obviously these guys weren't following that. Our works should show the truth that you and I are proclaiming. Uh, But Jesus says, look, I showed you good works from the Father. Again, this relationship and all of these works. So the good works and the works that Jesus does, number one, represent his deity. His unique relationship to God the Father in heaven. Number two, they represent God's character, don't they? Not what these guys are doing. These guys are wanting to kill Jesus. They're supposed to be representing God. Jesus represents him faithfully through the works. But then they say, well, we're not stoning you for that. And then Jesus does something else. He does another logical argument. Again, to kind of get them to back up and say, whoa, 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 wait a second. Look at what you're doing. It doesn't make any sense. He quotes Psalm 82. And in Psalm 82... it's kind of hard to figure out if, Jesus is, if God is talking to man in general, to the Israel in general, or to the judges uh, who were given the task of ruling. Um, but they were, they were messing up, and they were being evil. But he calls them gods, lowercase g. And he's basically saying, look, if, if God, who gave man the word, calls men who are evil gods, why are you upset with me? who God sent, who I am in this unique relationship with him, who he sent into this world, and I call myself 
the Son of God. He's like, you got no, you got no basis for what you're doing. So after he confuses them with the facts, he gets right back to his point, and he goes into the works. So I don't, I don't think that our problem today is people saying that they're God. Actually, we encourage that, don't we? The, the problem today is getting people to see they are not God, that there was only one God-man. His name is Jesus Christ. So we gotta, we got to convince people otherwise. Here's a uh, excerpt from a popular yoga journal. So uh, there's a recent article by Sally Kempton. She was an internationally recognized yoga teacher. She conveys her philosophy of life. And in regard to the sinful nature, this is what she says. Most of us long ago rejected authoritarian religion with its talk of sin and insistence on eliminating the darker forces within us. Instead, she urges her readers to open up their lives to the ancient Hindu warrior goddess Durga. So she says, Durga embodies the inner power to transform yourself. Let go of your addictions, let go of your obstacles and illusions and the fears that hold you back. She says you need to become aware of Durga, that shimmering presence around you. Offer salutations to her. Ask her, what is the major inner obstacle I have to face right now? I can help her out with that one. But, and then she says, ask her for guidance in the decision or the strength to stand up for what is right. Walk with the sense that Durga is walking with you. Speak with the sense that Durga is speaking through you. Notice how you feel when you let yourself be filled with the energy of Durga. Invite her energy into your life and she can open up your inner warrior. Her power guards you and promise, promises she'll never let you down. That sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? Where's the God? Right here. Right here. I see this bumper sticker offers. How do we respond to that? How, I mean, because that's part of the problem. People think that salvation is found in us. Right here. I see this bumper sticker all the time. I am a goddess. My first reaction is, why are you driving that vehicle then? If you are a goddess, if you're a god, can't you manipulate time and space and people's minds just get a better car? I mean, let's start. With the basics, you're driving a beat-up Ford. You, and isn't, isn't there a better way to advertise you're a goddess? I mean, can't you do some sort of trick or, you know, get people's attention? So, we say, prove it. Because Jesus does. Prove it. Prove it. If you're a if you're a god or a goddess, go ahead. Tell someone to put mud on their eyes that's blind. And go to a water fountain and rinse. Have them see again. Cure a lifelong disease that someone's had and suffered at the hands of doctors. Go ahead. Change Sebago Lake into wine. But before that, Wait till there's a storm. Take your shoes off. 
walk across from one side to the other. Grab a few loaves of bread and some fish. Go to the suffering and starving nations of this world and fill their bellies. Gather all the paralyzed and crippled of America all together. Ask them one question. Do you want to get well? And heal them. Walk into Evergreen Cemetery and say, come on out of there. Raise the dead. Breathe life into them. You can't. Do you know why? Because you're not a God. There's only one God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ, and he did all of that. And you need him to save your soul. Prove it. Jesus did, didn't he? That's who we trusted. And those works not only point to his relationship, his essence, his sharing in that essence of God Almighty, but they point to God's character. That's the God that we serve. God who heals the brokenhearted, who binds up the wounded, a God who raises the dead. All those miracles reveal his identity, his strength, and the truth of who he is. That you may believe Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. That by believing in him, you have life in his name. Folks, if we take out the deity of Jesus Christ, this all comes crashing down, doesn't it? We have nothing. We might as well go to that church that advertised in the beginning. Faith in Jesus' deity is at the heart of Christianity. It's what we believe as we enter into faith, and it's what keeps us going. Notice how it ends. If it ended in unbelief, right, we'd be kind of sad, right, those guys rejecting. Does it end there? No. What does John do? What does he add to this? He went away again beyond the Jordan, to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there, many came to him. What were they saying? While John performed no sign, everything John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. What did they believe? This. That Jesus Christ is God incarnate. He has the power 
to give you eternal life because of his suffering, death, and resurrection. And that once you place your life in his hands, he is never letting you go. And his works and his power prove it. So that you may believe and be strengthened in that faith. Father, thank you for this reality. Thank you for the hope that we have. Lord, help us to hold this with such a grip as you hold us in it. Help us to proclaim this from the rooftops. Help us to be assured of the life that we have in you and to just desire to share that life with others. And Lord, as we, as we take this offering now, we know it is just a mere symbol what you've given us. Help us to continue continue to pour into your kingdom for your glory. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.